Hello and welcome to this latest podcast from the University of Brighton. I'm Richard Newman and in this edition I've been speaking to Duncan Baker-Brown from the University School of Architecture and Design. Duncan, a sustainable architect and one of the people behind Brighton's pioneering waste house, sat down to speak to me ahead of the Responsible Future-sponsored Waste Zone Symposium and Exhibition at Future Build, an event being held at Excel in London between the 5th and 7th. Of March. You can be there for free by clicking on the links in the podcast description. Well, Duncan also spoke in depth about the circular economy and listen until the end to find out a little bit of interesting trivia about him. But I started by asking about his work here at the university. I've been uh, in the university for a long time, over 25 years. Um, I studied here, I did my postgraduate study here. Um, But my role at the moment uh, is coordinating technology and practices in the undergraduate school. I find that really interesting because I like working with a lot of people. So we have a team of 12 to 15 uh, staff uh, teaching across two years. And this year we're teaching the two years at the same time. So um, it sounds like a lot of work, but it's actually a lot of fun as well. And uh, we're doing lectures, seminars, um, workshops all around questioning and uh, looking at the potentials of technology to lead the design process or be integrated with architecture rather than something that's thought about afterwards. And your work outside of the university as well, you have your own practice, then we've got the Waste House, of course, it's part of a university project as well. Yeah, well, what, what I really like to do is to practice research and teach because in the world of architecture and design they all inform each other really in a quite straightforward and exciting way so I've got a practice called BBM Sustainable Design I've had it for over 25 years and we do what the name says on the tin you know we've focused on sustainable design since the beginning and since the beginning in 1994 we've been supported by the university and we've researched and taught around those issues as well so we've done some very exciting projects um some highlights over the years have been the house that Kevin built on Channel 4, which was the UK's first A-plus rated house, but also the UK's first uh, prefabricated dwelling made out of 90% material that had been grown. Um, so that whole, the whole idea behind that was this idea of capturing carbon and not burning stuff and proving that fluffy materials like straw and willow and things like that can be prefabricated and be a high-tech building but then we've also done projects like the waste house which uh, the design and construction of it was completely folded in with the core curriculum at the school of architecture and design we also had volunteers helping us and we collaborated with a lot of different other institutions like uh, the metropolitan college in brighton Uh, it was called city college at the time so we ended up having over 360 students learning their courses via the live project that was the waste house Um, we're going to talk a bit more specifically about the your work here at university the waste zone and uh, the waste house shortly but let's just jump straight in and talk about the circular economy just for those who don't know can you explain the approach yeah, well, at the moment, uh, the circular economy, economy is the opposite of what we do at the moment. At the moment, as human societies and uh, communities, we, we take materials from the natural world, we process them, make them into something, and then uh, use them for moments or months or whatever, and then throw them away. But the point is, there is no away. In a circular economy, there is no away, because the stuff you would normally throw away feeds as source material new products. So a circular economy mirrors the way the natural world works where there is no such thing as waste. Um, So it's uh, obviously one of the principles of a sustainable society where you don't create any waste, you don't throw stuff away. In a circular economy, for example, you might not need to mine anymore. Um, The position I take 
um, philosophically and in practice is that we just want to use the stuff that's already been pre-processed by humans already. Um, we're in this geological epoch called the Anthropocene, which is the human-made layer of stuff that wraps planet Earth. It's the stuff that's been mined and processed already, or it's in our atmospheres. Uh, in our oceans. So my point of view is that as designers we've got to work with that stuff. We've mined enough. So we might mine urban environments of uh, materials that are lying around or in situ at the moment. So that's what a circular economy is. I think the interesting thing is that it's getting a lot of traction now, a lot of interest. Um, I think unfortunately the, the whole the sort of phrase sustainable design, sustainable development, sustainable anything is sort of much maligned and is you know often referred to as the awkward um, relative that you invite at Christmas and as soon as they've left the table you sort of uh, uh, moan about and it, it's it's never quite captured people's imaginations in a positive way sustainable design has often been a way to beat yourself up a bit but with the circular economy we're not trying to sort of do bad things less often like cut emissions by 10% or whatever it is what we're trying to do is to actually remake and reprocess uh, the way we do everything so that we eliminate waste for example. Uh, sustainability of course one of the university's core values here in Brighton Hove the city likes to paint itself as a, as, as a green city, we've got the only green MP here, um, got the offshore wind farm, the waste house of course so it feels like a lot of go- is going on to change things but is that us living in a bit of a bubble? places like Brighton and London is it the case countrywide is it capturing the imagination yet um I think there's much more traction in the Netherlands in Germany in France in Belgium and I think that's why uh, working in the University of Brighton I've got two EU funded uh, research projects at the moment so in this climate at the moment it's interesting to have just started an EU funded uh, project and you know we work with partners in Brussels and Paris so I, th- I would say if you want to see the circular economy in action I'd go to the Netherlands I'd go to Amsterdam Utrecht or Rotterdam you can see it in practice you can see it in Brighton I mean I think because of the environment that sustained me here at the University of Brighton for 25 years uh, we've we practice what we preach here. And we do have, it is a bit of a bubble in Brighton in, in a positive way. And uh, I think we've been able to take advantage of that in a good way. And, you know, the Waste House was the first building in Europe made out of 90% waste that had planning and building regulations approval. It creates 30% more energy than it consumes. It was built by people as young as 15 years old. So I think we can, we're proving it can be done. I think it's interesting with the circular economy in mind that in London, for example, L- London now has a circular economy route map. This year is going to be quite big for the circular economy in London, and that's why one of the reasons um, I've curated the Waste Zone in London next week is because I've wanted to bring together people from the GLA um, and London organisations. There's an, an organisation that many people haven't heard of called LWAB, which is this London Waste and Recycling Board, They've been in the business for 25 years of procuring waste management, but now they're in the world of the circular economy, and that's really interesting. And so I'm bringing over uh, people from the Netherlands, from Germany, France, the USA, to come and talk about their interpretation of what a circular city might be, and to talk to people from London and Brighton as well, and to exchange ideas. But I'm really interested in people who are actually doing it, whether that's uh, implementing the legislation, looking at the financial models in the circular economy, or look at the designers coming up with new things, whether it's a product or a building, Mm. and the financiers that are making it work as well. And all these elements are being discussed at the Waste Zone. Mm. And large 
corporations are going to play their part, aren't they? Manufacturers, but maybe people that are away from actually manufacturing things, it's it, they're going to play a large part. I know that my former employer, quite a large corporation, made steps to completely eliminate plastic, so you have to use reusable cups across the entire company. Society and corporations are starting to catch on, aren't they? But they have to kind of, I guess, the more that they do it, the more that sort of feeds into people's everyday lives. You know, I agree. And I actually think it's the large corporations that are taking the lead at the moment. If I think about the people who are speaking at the waste the waste zone we're talking about PricewaterhouseCoopers we're talking about the AMB AMRO bank you know that uh, uh, that's the Netherlands sort of state bank uh, the banker there stands up and says we're not just a financial bank we're now a materials bank now that's the language of the circular economy because we talk about buildings being materials banks for the future so you design a building so that one day instead of being blown up and demolished it's deconstructed and that those materials make other buildings so the language and the sort of philosophy is working at a corporate level as well as a roots up level and of course at a roots up level you've got things like maker spaces repair cafes you've got people who are deconstructing smaller buildings and making other buildings out of it so what's really exciting is if you've got a roots up movement as well as a sort of corporate movement downwards as well i mean when it comes to the mindset that people have about sustainability if we go back sort of a couple of decades ago when recycling wasn't a massive thing but now it's part of people's everyday lives you start thinking about reusing things is it if people are stopping doing that is that a lazy sort of attitude is it kind of just about people sort of retraining their minds of how to think i think so but also i i think there's a lot we can do at a what might be a municipal level and just with our shops you know just making plastic bags expensive or not not that available uh, then people automatically do something else so i think there's been too much reliance actually on the individual doing the right thing whilst uh, you know cities municipalities whatever are not and certainly at the moment we've got so much inertia at at the top level you know in central government that uh, i'm really inspired by city mayors for example so you know the mayor of uh, amsterdam utrecht that you know what they're putting in place you know the netherlands has a a target of being zero waste by 2035 so Amsterdam says right we'll do it 2030 2030 is not even 10 years well just over 10 years away so you know these are big targets and uh, they might not meet them but I just think that you can see that it's it's the city states that are leading on this now because politicians have got other arguments all the time we make they make these other distractions when really we've got to get on with sorting out the problems associated with climate change and resource management is a big big deal Next week, then, building on the success of um, the Waste House and, of course, last year's involvement in future bills, the Waste Zone. The second year running, that you will be there. What's the concept and what can people expect? Okay, well, it was really good because we did it last year and last year it was just, it was a symposium. We had about 35 speakers over three days and a floor area of about 150 square metres. Future Bill came back to me and said that was really successful. We want you to curate 1,000 square metres. So, This year we're talking about a symposium, but this time we've got about 60 speakers over three days from all over Europe. Um, And that's really exciting because we've got the financiers, we've got the designers, we've got bankers, we've got legislators, all considering uh, what a circular city might be. And why are we focusing on cities? It's because I think that cities, most people live in cities now. And I also think it's cities where most stuff arrives and most stuff goes, you know, it's the busiest place in terms of resources and movement of. So at the moment, that's where most of the linear economy occurs, take, make, throw away. 
cities where we can turn that into cir- the circular economy quite easily. But in addition to the symposium, we've got um, the circular economy hub where we've got people advertising the, the um, services they do in the world of the circular economy or provide, as well as um, people selling products, uh, cradle-to-cradle approved products and things like that. So it's not just where people are speaking, it's where people are meeting and also showing off their wares. And uh, we've got various institutions, academic and otherwise. So we've got uh, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation coming to speak. We've got the University of Brunel setting up shop there and uh, UCL, uh, Delft. Um, we've also got University of Exeter and, of course, University of Brighton are, there, are very well represented Yes, and um, supported by the universities for responsible futures. So opportunity here as well for students, researchers and staff to come along to the Waystone network and maybe find some future research opportunities as well. Well, this is how I've built it. Uh, to, you know, when I s- sent out the speaker program to over 60 speakers, I, I was pointing out that, you know, what responsible futures is. And it's the, f- the facilitator, uh, one of the facilitators at University of Brighton to enable uh, research and enterprise. So, you know, we're open for business and we're, we're looking for other research projects. We've just landed a, a, another one uh, looking at a, the potentials for deconstructing and reconstructing buildings, which is very much a, a circular economy theme. Um, and we're going to be doing a summer school based at the University of Brighton next year, where we've got SMEs and students uh, looking at doing exactly that. So that's exciting because that was born out of last year's Waste Zone. Speakers from last year's Waste Zone approached us to do this research project. So we're hoping we get more of that this year. Um, we've got commercial uh, opportunities as well, I think. And I think University of Brighton's really well pr- placed to be seen as a, a bit of a hub uh, facilitating the circular economy in the UK. Most of the people chairing the um, 14 or so debates we've got over three days are, are University of Brighton people. So my colleague Nick Gant, Kat Fletcher, and um, we've got uh, Dr David Greenfield as well. These are all people that work with the University of Brighton at the moment so it's, it's quite exciting it does feel like there's something happening within the university yeah that's, that's exciting taking a big lead on it as well going forward um, we'll put the details of how you can get along to it in the podcast description but if people want to find out more where can they go to look out for future build uh, online and uh, it's called the waste zone so you can uh, register to go to future build it's for free it's at a building called Excel which is near London City Airport and uh, yeah it's three days between March the 5th and March the 7th and it's going to be fascinating and really exciting we've also got uh, the Dutch Embassy involved they're doing a networking event on the 5th of March you can come along to that uh, straight up that's being held at the Waste Zone and for me that's really exciting because the Dutch Embassy are taking us seriously and uh, they can see how many people from the Netherlands that are involved so they see it as, they're seeing it as a networking opportunity as well so I think I think we've been taken seriously around this issue of the circular economy. Mm. Let's quickly talk about the Waste House because it's still getting an incredible amount of attention you know even recent interest in the BBC, Vice, just for people that don't know it is an, it is an incredible building just remind us of some of the old items which have contributed to its construction and the ongoing projects that are involved. Okay, well, it started off as um, trying to answer this statistic that which was at the time in 2013 for every five houses we built we threw away one house worth of stuff so we thought why don't we just build a low energy passive house type house or building out of the material construction material that goes to landfill and then while we were developing the design and by the way can we do that with students as well so we did we designed and built it 
uh, with students as well. But while we were des- developing the design on site, uh, Kat Fletcher from Freegal, she said, uh, why don't we raise awareness of the materials and stuff people throw away on a day-to-day basis? So it went from a construction project to a polemic to a do you realize project and so we designed the house so it's got um, hollow walls and in the hollow walls we got things like 4,000 DVDs 4,000 video cassettes VHS video cassettes from the 80s and 90s we've got 25,000 toothbrushes we've got two tons of denim we've got floppy disks so these are things all that plastic stuff especially you forget you've forgotten that they're still out there and we're raising awareness of, of the fact that most plastic ever produced in the last hundred years is still with us. So what we're doing with the Waste House, it's, it's not a house actually, it's a teaching facility, it's a live research project. We're storing this stuff and saying to our young designers at the University of Brighton and elsewhere, because we get a lot of visitors, we've had over 8,000 visitors in four years, we're saying these are problems that need to be sorted out. How can you design out these problems? We collected 25,000 toothbrushes in only four days from a cabin service company working at Gatwick Airport cleaning air, airliners as they landed. So all those toothbrushes were from one route over four days and they never, those toothbrushes never get used. What's that all about? And so we, you, you raise awareness of that sort of thing and then you've got designers out there. You've got makers out there. We've got car- carpenters that worked on the, the waste house when they were 16. They're now doing their first job. The only live project they ever worked on was the waste house and they've got all this good practice. They're questioning why stuff's being thrown away. We're wrapping our building sites at the University of Brighton at the moment with ply hoarding. We built the waste house out of ply hoarding. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so it's getting people thinking about materials in a different way, where materials come from and where they end up. Yeah. How much of, has there been anything that's sort of come out of it with the, with the construction of the, of the house where you've thought that that could actually be a, a good way forward of using something? Well, certainly the ply I just mentioned, mm-hmm. because we've got, you know, our, the, the waste house is structurally sound and safe mm-hmm. and it's made out of secondhand ply. Some of that ply, timber ply had been used three times before and there's a lot of it around. We know that when we were talking to large contractors and asking them for materials, and by the way, the School of Architecture does that every year when we do our uh, graduation shows. We're always building something and we can get ply really easily. So uh, I think that you know, the reuse of timber and, and ply in particular is easy. The other thing that's really interesting is we've wrapped the outside of the waste house um, in old carpet tiles, and they're now four or five years old, four and a half years old, and they look great. They've got a fire-eating... They're completely approved and they look great. And there's billions of carpet tiles around. So I don't know. I think there's some materials there that people could take seriously. We've recently installed a new uh, prototype for one of our interreg projects, uh, some prototype insulation um, in the house. So we took out some of the DVDs and replaced it with uh, a waste textile material that we found, which was bedding, which was uh, duvets. And that's one of the things that's captured people's imaginations recently. So we've been monitoring that, and it's got a really good U-value, which is the insulation value. And of course it has, because it's used to keep us warm, isn't it? So nobody recycles uh, old duvets at the moment, but we can wash them and install them in our buildings, perhaps. But even in a way more delightfully, we finish the outside of the wall that's got the duvets in it with these tiles that we made out of oysters, oyster shells. Mm. And uh, this was locating another local waste stream or a waste stream local to the waste house. And um, we, we've got a restaurant in Brighton called um, English's and it throws away 50,000 oyster shells a year. 
we can collect some of those, we can fire some of those into quicklime and crush up others into aggregates, add a bit of water, and you get this sort of concrete at the end of the day. And we've got these gorgeous off-white tiles on the outside of the waste house now made out of material that's always thrown away. So some of these experiments now, now we've got time to reflect, choose our research questions, are in a way just as interesting, if not more interesting, than the original idea of the waste house, which was, for me, most interesting as a sort of learning tool, having this live project that lasted for two years, actually, a year in production, a year on site, involving students at every stage. That, for me, was one of its biggest successes. And certainly in terms of the awards it got, etc., that's that's where it seemed to capture most people's imagination. It's now doing it because of the whole waste issue and the fact, you know, it's still the Blue Planet 2 effect. And I think that's why it's capturing people's imaginations as much as any as, as it ever did back in 2014. Yeah, and it's become a big part of the Brighton community and it's a big part of the university community. So for current students and students to come in the future, it's an exciting research project to continue working on. Exactly. It's a live teaching space. I mean, it's, it's difficult to book the room sometimes because it's, it's in high demand. But yes, we t- our architects uh, get uh, taught there, um, but so do 3D and uh, and design and craft and, and all sorts anyone can book it but also when we were building it we, we developed a lot of partnerships with local schools um, and uh, other agencies and they still use it so you know I've got, to, uh, I've got to try and get it booked today for the Institute of Civil Engineers who've used it regularly and they're trying to they just want it for a meeting and it's really good to have this sort of outward facing uh, thing and in fact this sort of little icon which, which is the waste house that um, anybody can uh, come and have a look at and even and even use. We've talked about it briefly already, but you're primarily an architect and a practicing one, so BBM Sustainable Design is your practice. Given your success in recent years and the shift change towards sustainable thinking, you must be in significant demand. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, we've actually, we're actually rebrand or uh, having an, a new brand for which we're launching at the Waste Zone, which is BBM Closing the Loop. So we're still BBM Sustainable Design, the architects, but we're being asked to... Uh, be consultants for other design practices around the whole circular economy thing. So, yeah, we're launching BBM Closing the Loop, and that's really exciting. We've got some really interesting projects there because they really do combine research and practice together, and uh, I'm really excited about that. So it's got a lot of traction. But I I think it's also, for me, building on the sort of academic framework uh, foundations that the university give you the teaching and research informing practice for me that's always been a, a very a strong foundation to build from and it's authentic and I think a lot of people feel that they can approach universities to get some research done in a sort of independent authentic way without the sort of commercial bias that uh, if you might be trying to sell solar panels or insulation to someone you know we, we're not doing that we're, we're trying to sell uh, in a way ideas and questions and sell the ability to question common practice. With the amount of things that you've got going on, how much time do you actually find that you have in practice? Um, I do a, a day a week. I mean, the thing is that in practice, I've got a partner, Ian Mackay, and we've been teaching and practicing together for over 25 years. So at the moment, I do more of the teaching he does, but in the past, it's been the other way around. So we're a proper partnership. And so he runs the practice. There's about 10 of us. A lot of them are Brighton graduates. And, uh, you know, and we're busy and we're lucky because we've got uh, our offices uh, just outside Lewis in a rural location. People love being there. We're actually on Cooksbridge railway station, so it's easy access to London. 
um, or Hastings or whatever. And um, yeah, no, we've got lo- loyal staff that stick with us for a long time. So it's, it's a great team. And so it, it's, that's genuinely good teamwork. Um, so yeah, I only need to be there about a day a week. You've been at university for, for a long time, as you said. Um, so uh, clearly you have a, a passion for higher education. What is it about it? Well, I mean, it's our future. When I graduated from the University of Brighton with my uh, Master's in Architecture, within a year, my partner Ian and I, we'd both graduated from here. Uh, we'd won a competition to design the house of the future, which we designed, was, we designed it and we built it in '94. Um, we very quickly were asked to um, teach here. And I grabbed the opportunity because doing that building, the, the house of the future then was a sustainable off-grid house but it asked a lot more questions than it answered and it actually got a lot of people asking questions about it It was a high profile project and I realized I didn't know half the answers and that we just needed to continually learn Uh, and um, for me teaching offers you that opportunity because if you are engaged as a teacher learner co-learner with the uh, students you're getting asked 70 questions a day and um, that's really just keep you on your toes and keeps you thinking so for me uh, it's been, it's kept me thinking and hopefully not stagnating. A lot of architects are in small practice, one or two people, and they work on their own and they build up this bubble around themselves and they have their own little kingdom. And uh, for me, that you can see that sometimes with these people. They're, they haven't learned anything much in the last 10 years or whatever. So it keeps me on my toes, keeps me inquiring. And uh, I really like the directness of the questions you get from students um, and I'm really encouraged that you know I don't want people just to think they can't question what I'm saying because I've been around here saying it for a long time so it, it inspires me at the end of the day yeah and equally for the students um, and you may be too modest to say it but for them to come and learn from people like you that's got to be pretty valuable for them because you can be teaching them to not be in that bubble like you mentioned um, to, to think differently to think sustainably yeah, no, it's uh, that that's uh, great, and you know some students are very generous with their comments and uh, and support. Um, so that that's always a delight. But for example, you know, I, I published a book a couple of years ago called The Reuse Atlas, and um, I was encouraged to put it on the reading list of, <laughs> uh, of our, for our technology report um, modules, and I, and I did. But you know, the students will rib me for doing that. So you know, they don't take any prisoners, which is really good. <laughs> Great. Um, Duncan, we, we finish every podcast by asking some four oh, yes. questions away yes. from work. Yes. So uh, we ask this on, on every podcast. So the first one is would be to ask you what your favourite place in Sussex is. Right, I've got one which is actually the Garden of the Jolly Sportsman in the summer. So the Jolly Sportsman is a pub in East Chiltington, just north of the Downs, and uh, sitting out there in the summer, on the summer evening with my dog and my wife and daughter is complete heaven. Lovely. Um, what are you currently reading, watching, and or listening to? You can pick all three or just pick one or the other. Right. Uh, reading at the moment is really strange. Uh, Peter Ackroyd, The Tudors, Peggy Seeger's um, uh, autobiography, Wild In by Isabella Tree. Honestly, I'm reading four books. And uh, the Marvel comics, The Untold Story, I've read that before by Sean Howe. It's, it's completely uh, amazing. And one last book I just want to recommend if you haven't read it, which is East... East West Street by Philip Sands, which is incredible. It's uh, it's all about a uh, a city which is now uh, called Live. It's been in three or four other countries over the last hundred years, and it's all about um, um, 
oh, it's human rights at the end of the day. And it's, it's interesting because it's had a lot of problems in the last 100 years um, associated with the Holocaust. And what was amazing is that the two human rights uh, lawyers that um, uh, prosecuted the Nazis in the Nuremberg trials were both from that city, both studied at that city, both, and both came to the trials, from one from the UK, one from the US. One created the term genocide, and the other created the idea of crimes against humanity. And they both came from the same small college in the same town that has even now... I've got a Jewish friend who was there last year, and she was really felt scared and worried about the place in the evening because of the rise of the far right again. So it's, it's, it's repeat, history is repeating itself. So please, if you haven't read it, look at uh, East West Street. What's your next question? <laughs> <laughs> As describe your uh, perfect weekend. Well, it's almost going to end up at my perfect place at the Jolly Sportsman again, but it's, it's probably a game of tennis with my daughter and a walk with my dog, Cora, who's a Scottish terror, because we live right next to the South Downs, so we can walk up on the Downs, and most mornings I do start with that. So, um, But at the weekend, we can relax a bit more and uh, have a lovely roast dinner that we might cook at home and go for a walk. So it's just simple stuff, really. Yeah, um, and just finally then, if you could invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would they be? Okay, uh, one's a cliche for a an English man in his mid-50s. So David Bowie, um, for lots of reasons, and um, Bobby Moore, and um, my father, who died 20 years ago. And he was, he was called Cliff Baker Brown, and um, he was um, Olympic and national judo coach, and uh, never quite got my obsession with architecture. <laughs> <laughs> Never attempted to go into judo yourself? I did. You did? Oh, I did. How, and how good were you? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, no, I mean, as a, as a 19-year-old, I was, well, 18-year-old even, I was, uh, I'm a black belt, and uh, that, that was the decision. I decided uh, to study architecture, and I stopped doing judo. My father was a bit disappointed in that. Um, but, you know, I used to be very good. Uh, the first thing I was good at was drawing and judo. And uh, then I sort of shoehorned in somehow architecture. <laughs> but architecture was my uncle's pursuit. So I had an, uh, an uncle who was an architect. So, yeah. Thanks to Duncan for his time. A reminder then, you can book your place at the Waste Zone at Future Build by clicking on the links in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can listen to previous editions via most podcast providers, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts, where you can like and subscribe. You just need to search for the University of Brighton. Next week, we'll return to previewing our latest series of inaugural lectures, and I'll be speaking to Lizzie Osler ahead of her lecture, Not Aged by Time. Thanks for listening.